Reading from Daniel chapter six. Please Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. 
At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is God's word. Okay, we're halfway through the book then, the book of Daniel, chapter 6. And it's the last narrative chapter in the book. Uh, describing what says the life of Daniel and his friends before chapter seven to twelve, we get into uh, slightly more confusing, but the apocalyptic literature, uh, the visions of the future that Daniel has. Chapters one to six are the narrative, really. Chapter seven to twelve, uh, the apocalyptic. But the whole book is united by the one message: the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He is sovereign. And particularly, He is sovereign. So trust Him. Even when you're living in a hostile culture, as Daniel was, trust the Lord that he's sovereign, he rules over history, even when you're in a hostile culture. In many ways, the book of Daniel is very similar to that of 1 Peter in the New Testament. Believers are aliens and strangers passing through this world. This world is not home. This world is just a temporary place, and we're on our way home. We're pilgrims. Daniel knew that. That's the message of the New Testament in one sense. Now, there is a, there's a sense in which I probably this is the most familiar chapter in the book. And there's one says, to my mind, I don't care about you, but to my mind, there's quite a lot of pleasure in getting to chapter 6. Uh, because, oh, it's Daniel in the lion's den. Brilliant. Uh, we all know this one, kind of. And it's, you know, it's a well-known story and it's fun, kind of, unless you get thrown at the end uh, into the lion's den. But there is, of course, the danger with that. We're just, oh yes, Daniel, over-familiar. There is a certain danger with that. We ignore kind of the familiar things to us and also that we assume that he is nothing more than a model for us. There's probably dangers in that as we get to. So look, we want to break it down this way. Uh, Four little things. Uh, Look at him as the, uh, this is not a great title in one sense, but the irritating believer, the wise believer, the vindicated believer, 
And then question mark, the model believer. First then, the irritating uh, believer. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. So if you hear last time, uh, the king is dead, long live the new king. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, conquered Jerusalem and brought the people into exile, uh, brought the Israelites into exile. He, he, he's, he's long gone, actually. But there's a whole new change of regime. We saw it at the end of chapter 5 and uh, verse 31. Uh, so we're no longer, we're, even though we're still in Babylon, this is no longer the Babylonian Empire, but it's the next empire, the Medo-Persian uh, Empire, ruled by Darius. And uh, his new government, so what do you do if you're a new government? Well, you sort of have a reshuffle of the civil service. That's what you have to do to try and get your own men in place. And you can see the restructuring, 120 satraps, uh, local mayors, provincial governors. That's kind of what he's talking about here. And over them, three senior officials. Why these three senior officials? Uh, end of verse 2. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So clearly corruption is a bit of an issue uh, if you're in the high levels of government in Babylon of the day. Is there a parallel? You read the newspapers as well as I do. Okay, so, but that's the issue. So you've got these local governors and three men over them. And before long, Daniel becomes first among equals. Uh, verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So there's, Dan- there's a king and then there's Daniel. Not bad going. Once again, I don't, we're not entirely sure, but you know, about 25 years after his last go, he's prime minister again. So it's a bit like a Churchill comeback, but just even longer. You know, magnificent wartime period, then 51 back in power, but this is whoop, 25 years later. Daniel's in his 80s now. So to become prime minister over the land, he's exceptional. The Bible tells you so. Um, he's impressive. Now, uh, what's going on? Now, let me just pause on this and uh, this, this little section. It's worth observing as we just pass through. Daniel is, biblically speaking, as the Bible has come down to us, in one sense, one of the big four of the prophets. You know how the Bible is constructed. You have the four major prophets and the 12 minor prophets. It's mainly a feature of length. But the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, I don't want to make too big a deal of this, but Isaiah was, as far as we can tell, a prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet all his life. Ezekiel was a prophet. And Daniel was a civil servant. And I think that's partly why people, excuse me, naturally or instinctively warm to the book of Daniel and Daniel as a character. Because he's not a professional Bible man. He's not a vicar. He's doing a secular job. And it does it very well. So two things in particular about him. He's very easy to relate to. Uh, he's loyal to the empire, but he's distinctive, these two things. So first, that he's loyal to the empire. Yet verse 3, we're told he gets his head down and does a great job. We're not told particularly what exceptional qualities he had. But given that the key element in the job description is rooting out corruption, the king not suffering loss, you probably think that Daniel is very good at not being corrupt and rooting out corruption. He's exceptional. At that, maximizing the revenue for the king. Now, Daniel has been doing this, as we said, for about 70 years. So chapter 1, verse 1, we're told the year is 605 BC. We know that Darius takes over in 539 BC. This is nearly 70 years. This Israelite has been serving his pagan empire, one boss and then after another. He's in his mid-80s now. 
And yet still, he's very much obeying the Lord's word. The Lord's word through the prophet Jeremiah, when the exiles were first taken into Babylon, in Jeremiah 29, he is simply, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. Situation there. You had the, uh, the Israelites, they've been taken out of their lands, uh, Jerusalem and their capital, they've been taken into exile in Babylon, and they're thinking, well, stuff this. We're just going to camp out, we just want to form our own little enclave and not get involved in anyone else's lives. Jeremiah had to say, no, seek the good of this empire. Daniel's been doing that for 70 years. That's impressive. And in one sense, he's a model in that. You see it in the Bible. But godly believers have always been concerned for the societies they live in. Always concerned. See, Daniel, he could so easily, I mean, golly, he's been prime minister 25 years ago. Surely he could have just retired in his 80s. Surely his memoirs have made him a bit of money. I mean, so I'm told, Tony Blair's worth upwards of £60 million. You can earn quite a lot of money being Prime Minister once you've retired. But um, Daniel, surely he could just retire. He keeps going in his 80s. We're told a little later in chapter 9 that in this same year, the first year of Darius, Daniel is praying. He's done the maths in his head. He knows that God had said, 70 years my people will be in exile. Daniel's done the math. It's almost 70 years. We find him praying in chapter 9, Lord, can we go home now? 70 years are up. We're just about to go back to Jerusalem. Now, Daniel, he's on his way out. He knows that. He's had Pickford's rounds to measure up his furniture and get a quote on moving. He's going back to Jerusalem. He's a man in his 80s. He's done his bit. Surely he's affluent enough, having been prime minister, just to sit on his backside and do nothing. He knows that very shortly he's leaving the country. But he gets on and serves. He's loyal to the empire where he's based. He still cares for the peace and prosperity of the Medo-Persian empire. He's done his best to serve it. Godly believers are always keen to serve the city, the society in which they live. That's one half of him here. He's loyal to the empire. The second half, though, is he is distinctive. So verse 4, he's made number one in the kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of the government affairs. They don't like Daniel's appointment. Now, it could just be what you and I experience most days in the office or most weeks, jealousy. Someone else is promoted, you don't like it. If someone become, if there's three of you on an equal level and one is promoted, that's a demotion. Surely that's an affront to my status and I must do, you know, that sort of thing. could just be that. Or probably, given what we've read so far, Daniel's very good at sorting out corruption. And they're a little bit nervous about that. But either way, they want to get rid of him. So verse 4, they, they try to find something wrong with his conduct. End of verse 4, isn't it fabulous? They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Brilliant. Wouldn't it be great if that was uh, the testimony of your colleagues about you? (laughs) That would be pretty impressive if uh, that was said of everyone here. So what do they decide to do? Well, verse 5, the only way we're going to nail him is on his faith. So verse 5, finally these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Aha, now we can get him. 
Now let me suggest that in this combination he is both loyal to the empire and distinctive, that Daniel is a great role model. He's a great model of a believer here. He is neither aloof from his society, but nor is he assimilated by it. And that is a wonderful combination that he's got there. It's probably worth asking for yourself, which you would tend towards. Now, some Christians would perhaps lean towards just being aloof. This world is a terrible place, and I can't wait to leave it, and um, the culture is just drifting in a terrible fashion, and everyone is awful, and everyone hates Christians, and we just must uh, bunker down in our own little holes and be safe. People just slightly aloof. Others will just assimilate, be no different, blend in. The difference between the Christian and their non-Christian colleague who sits opposite them is zilch. And let's be honest, for a congregation such as us, in a city such as us, that's probably the more likely we just assimilate. So worth asking for yourself, though, which you would tend towards. Daniel walks the line between them. But do note the outcome. As uh, He's living this line then. He's loyal to the empire. He's distinctive. And it's mixed, the response to him. So Darius loves him. That's why he gets promoted. You're Darius, you're the ruler. You think, oh, honest, hardworking, loyal, brilliant. Love this man. Promote this man. Great to have him in charge. So Darius loves him. His colleagues hate him. Goody two-shoes. It's going to ruin our, you know, our backhanders, ruin the brown envelopes, brown envelopes from the wealthy in society. Don't like it. Now, that is entirely normal. And the Bible is consistent throughout in just saying universal popularity is impossible for the believer. You'll never know that. You're in la-la land if you think, just if you're loyal to the empire and do a really good job, everyone will love you. No, you're in the land of make-believe. That won't happen. If you're distinctive, people will not like you. That's just normal. So as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans, he tells the believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live a good life, be distinctive, but loyal to the empire, but they'll accuse you of doing wrong, they won't like it. Or some will become Christians, but just expect those sort of responses. It's very normal, don't be surprised. I find it bewildering. I, mean, I think, in one sense, in the UK, Christians have just had it too good. We've had it too good and too easy for so long. And so things become mildly more complicated for Christians to live, and everyone's up in arms. Now, don't mishear me. It's good to campaign on politics, good to be involved in politics, good to be invo- you know, good to lobby, absolutely. But the Bible says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if life is hard for you as a Christian. If the law goes against you, don't be surprised. Yet Daniel was an outstanding employee, without corruption, exceptional. But he was quite irritating. Just you've got to expect that. Okay. So Daniel, he's an irritating believer. 
A second little thing, then, he's a wise believer. Uh, well, first of all, then, what, no, come on, let's go back a bit. What are his uh, enemies going to do then? Well, they get this plot. And uh, Schweling uh, uh, read it very well, didn't she? So the administrators and the satraps, they went as a group to the king and said, Oh, King Darius, live forever. Obsequ- uh, I can't even say obsequious. Let me try again, obsequious. Uh, obsequious and uh, sycoph- sycophantic. Oh, goodness, I mustn't try any of these words. Not without more coffee. Anyway, they, um, they flatter him rel- relentlessly. Oh, it's going all wrong now. Um, they trip over their tongues and they praise him and praise him and they come up with this plan no one then can pray to any god or man except for 30 days except you O king and Darius we don't presumably he's not just a, a numbskull oh that's nice everyone prays to me what a lovely idea. I would say that there's, presumably there's a bit more to it than that. This is, uh, he's just taken over the empire. It's still the first year. It's a sort of political power play. I'm the mediator between the gods and the people. I am the source of all your blessings. You must pray for me. Somewhat, it's a sort of p- pushing conformity upon this empire he's taken over, presumably, rather than just being uh, completely inane as a ruler. So that's the plan. What is Daniel to do? Second thing then, verses 10 to 11, he's a wise believer, or the wise believer. What is Daniel to do? Verse 10, this law's got published. If he prays as normal, he's going to be thrown to the lions. What does he do? Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to his God. This is my favorite bit. Just as he'd done before. The news comes. Daniel, pray to your God or you're going to die. What do you do? Well, this is what I always do. God hasn't changed. God's not changed. But Daniel, do you not see there's a crisis? You know, all us believers, we're all going to die. But God hasn't changed, has he? Calm down. Yeah, the circumstances are bad. God hasn't changed. And some of us just need to remember that. In our own lives, or, or politically, on the large scale, disaster may strike. Oh, it's God. God hasn't changed. Is he still powerful? Yes. Still the creator of the world? Yes. Still the ruler of history? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, let's carry on and pray. Okay. Just carries on. It's fabulous. He prays. Now, four little things, briefly, about this prayer. Uh, first, it's regular. So he does it three times a day. That was Daniel's habit. Uh, no, nowhere in the Old Testament are you told to pray three times a day explicitly. That's just his habit. He is the prime minister of the land, presumably busy bloke. Prime ministers tend to be quite busy. If they go on holiday to Ibiza, they get told off and it's not very good. But he's the prime minister of the land. He's presumably busy, still carves out prayer time three times a day. Where are his mates? Where's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to chat this through? Well, I don't know. He's in his 80s, they've probably died. Um, he's probably been to their funerals. But there's no mention of them here. We don't know that. But he just gets on with his normal routine. Now, it's a very gentle point, but let me just say, if you're going to be a Christian distinctive in a pagan culture, you have to have a devotional life that sustains you. That's not remarkable, is it? But no matter how busy you are, you've got to have a devotional life that sustains you. You know, many of the blokes would have heard, I don't know what it was, six months ago, in the, uh, a bit more than that. Um, Mike Farmer here, I mean, you know, hedge fund guy, Matt manages billions on a daily basis. Well, the most important thing is just to have your devotional time in the morning. 
If you don't have that, you make bad decisions. If you do make that, you remember the Lord is sovereign. It keeps you calm. That is very simple. It's just the same as Daniel. Crisis hits. What do you do? Well, obviously, you pray. Obviously. That's the most sensible thing to do. So he's, uh, it's regular, his prayer life. Uh, more briefly, it's humble. He's on his knees still, verse 10. Oh, I don't know. That you may be, I, so I'm just drawing out one thing. It's just a posture. But it's humble. Each and every day, the prime minister got down on his knees to pray. It's a very healthy thing to do. It reminds you that you're not in control. Presumably, as prime minister, Daniel could click his fingers and quite a lot of people came running. But he gets down on his knees, just reminds him who he is before the living God. It's regular, it's humble, it's thankful. Striking, the first thing he does is pray. Sorry, excuse me, is give thanks. Three times a day, verse 10, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks. Now, he's not oblivious to the danger. Verse 11, when the people burst in, they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Oh, Daniel knows that the future is very uncertain. He knows he may well die for sitting, for kneeling there and praying. Still, the first thing he does is give thanks because it just reminds him that God has been good to him for his 80 years and sustained him and kept him. Striking though, isn't it? What do you do when crisis hits? Probably isn't pray. When we do get around to praying, it's help. Daniel's very different. Okay, so his prayer is regular, it's humble, it's thankful. Fourth little thing, it's public. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus would say, look, when praying is, is popular and anyone can get away with it, it's no big deal, go and do it on your own, in your room, so people don't see you, so that people don't think you're showing off. But in Daniel chapter 6, when praying is illegal, do it in public. <laughs> because if you just pray on your own in your head, you're saying... Well, no one knows that you're not just saying, yes, I do what Darius says, I do what Darius says. So what does he do? He does it in his windows. He opens his windows. You know, no doubt the news of the... No, they don't exist. The Sun newspapers there with their big lenses. Uh, you know, the satraps have got Mr undercover agent there trying to they've got his room bugged in case he prays out loud they've got big cameras watching his bedroom in case they can see him praying and Daniel says I'm going to pray now look at me are you ready here I'm going to pray he does it publicly that was very striking Daniel's praying here is essentially it's civil disobedience in this context no I'm not going to obey your law if it comes to a choice between obeying the law of the land and obeying the law of God, I follow the Lord. And you need to know that, says Daniel. Now look, that's, you know, for us it's not going to be civil disobedience to pray in public, but I hope you do, if you're a Christian. I hope you do. We don't want to be, um, if, we're, if you're a Christian, we don't want to be frightened bunny rabbits who just retreat down the warrens of, and, and, and safety and only, only do anything Christian when no one's looking at us. You know, I, I, I mean, it's a bit daft, but I ostentatiously make a point of praying in well, Cafe Nero, where I spend most of my week. And um, you know, to pray, just to, I, don't know, I don't want that to be forced out, so that to be odd in public. I mean, that may just be me, but I'd say, I think Daniel would say, no, no, no. Let people know 
Pray publicly, read your Bible publicly, but pray in particular. So his prayer is regular, it's humble, it's thankful, it's public. His refusal to deny the Lord is brazen. Though I have no doubt that when he got, went up to his flat, his apartment block, he met other Israelites on the way and they said, Daniel, what are you going to do? What are you, you going to do, Daniel? Oh, just what I always do. But Daniel, don't do that. Daniel, if you pray publicly, you'll die. Maybe. Daniel, it's 30 days. Look, I quite often go for 30 days without praying, just by default. I just go on holiday and then forget that I'm meant to pray. I'm that sort of Christian. Lots of Christians go fall into that sort of pattern. Daniel, it's 30 days. You can go without 30 days. Come on, don't take so seriously. No, no, I'm going to pray. Daniel, pray in your head. Lots of us pray in our heads. We all know we sort of drift and end up thinking of shopping lists and what we need to get done the next day. And if we set the recorder to record that thing on telly, I can't remember. Oh, Lord, I'm back again. Lots of us have, you know, but pray in your head, Daniel. You can pray in your head. You just, no one will know. Daniel, you're the prime minister. We've never had a Christian in that sort of position of influence. Daniel, don't bog it. Don't throw it away on an issue of just stubborn principle. And Daniel said, no, no, look, it's, a, it's the law of Darius or the law of the Lord. I trust the Lord. I'll be faithful to the Lord. I'm serving him. And what happens? I don't know. We'll find out, though. Because those satraps, I've seen their cameras and they're very big. We'll find out. Daniel says, I'm going to serve the Lord. Faithfulness to the Lord matters, and Daniel is willing to pay the price. Now, I've called him here, verses 10 and 11, the wise believer. Why so? I'd want to suggest here, don't, don't view him as heroic. Yeah, Daniel, prayer warrior. He's, I think perhaps he's less a legend of faith and more a learner of faith. Can I put it like that? He is now in his 80s. He's been in exile for 70 years and he has seen the Lord's faithfulness. So he's seen in chapter 1 refusing to eat the food that was put before them, making a stand and saying, no, I'm not going to obey everything Nebuchadnezzar says. And he was vindicated. He's seen in chapter 2 that the Lord reigns over the dreams of the king and the Lord reigns over all empires. He's seen in chapter 3 that the Lord, the Lord reigns over death, protecting Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the furnace. He's seen in chapter 4 that the Lord rules over proud monarchs, reducing them, humbling them. He's seen in chapter 5 that the Lord removes proud monarchs. He's seen all this in his lifetime. He's seen that the Lord is faithful. This is just a shrewd application of what he's learned all his life. It's a wise thing to do. Daniel, just before you make your decision, has the Lord ever let you down? No. Okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to be faithful to him. So I I don't know. There is something, of course, heroic about what he does. But is he more a learner of faith? He just learned the lesson well than being a legend. And how much more so perhaps you and me? Has the Lord been faithful to his promises in history? Yes, he has. Supremely in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have we got good basis upon which to trust him? Yes, we do. He's a wise believer. 
So he's an irritating believer. People don't like the fact that he's distinctive. He's the wise believer. A third little thing, he's the vindicated believer. Uh, verses 12 to 28. Okay then, so Daniel's enemies, they see him praying, verse 12. So verse 11, they, they found him praying and asking God for help. So what do they do? Verse 12, they go to the king and, uh, king, verse 12, oh king, live forever, yes, we love you, you're wonderful, everyone should pray to you, there's no one like you. Uh, verse 12, just to check, did you publish a decree? I, th- I think you published a decree, didn't you, that if anyone prayed to you, they're in trouble. You published that decree? Yes, you know I published that decree, says the king, uh, uh, end of verse 12, and the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be repealed. Ah, uh, yeah, verse 13, there's just one thing. You know Daniel, who you really like, your most faithful, honest, loyal employee? Yes. He's breaking that law. Verse 13. He prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Verse 14, he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. I don't know what that means. He gets all the lawyers out to pour over the the various edicts of the Medes and the Persians. Is there a loophole here? But it's very striking, that language, isn't it? Determined to rescue Daniel, made every effort, and could he? No. Golly, how embarrassing. You're the king over the greatest empire in the world. And you can't rescue your one honest employee. Not that powerful, are you, Darius? Got a good general, quite good with your armies. Powerless. And do you remember we've said this whole section, really, chapter 2 to 7, is where does the power lie? Is it in the kingdoms of men or is it in the, king, or is it in the hands of the, the Most High God? Darius can't save Daniel. Can the living God? Yes, he can. That's where the power lies. That's the main point of this section all the way through. So um, uh, what happens? Well, Daniel is, uh, goes down into the tomb. Uh, you get these fairly desperate like, final words, right? The verse 16, oh, may your God whom you serve continue rescue. Uh, Daniel's put in the, into the tomb uh, with his stone rolled in front of it. The king seals it, and those are the nobles so that the king doesn't do a naughty in the night. Um, verse 18, the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he couldn't sleep. What good does it do being the king? Trapped by your own laws. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to the Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has, has your God whom you rescued, sorry, served continually, been able to rescue you? What do you, what do you think he's expecting to hear? I mean, if you're, if it's, surely he's probably thinking he's going to get... You know, the MGM lion roaring at him. You know what, you know what, you know what? But Daniel speaks up. Verse 21, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel. He shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me. I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, O oh, king. Well, I don't know about you, king. I had a really lovely night's sleep. You look a bit haggard. Did you sleep well? No, I didn't, Daniel. Oh, I had a really nice sleep. I had this lovely lion rug I leapt against. It's like a sort of um, heated blanket. And uh, God sent an angel. We had a nice chat, me and the angel. We talked chatting things through. You know, it's, I mean, angels, they can tell you all sorts of things. I've had a terrific night. How about you, O king? I'm really worried about you. Why were you worried? I wasn't worried. I put my trust in the living God. The king was overjoyed. And uh, Daniel is lifted from the den. And there's no 
wound found on him. So it's not just that the mouths of the lions have been taped shut. They've been docile. They haven't attacked him. No wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. As was the culture of the time then, uh, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were killed. If you falsely accuse someone and they're proven innocent, then you receive their punishment. Very much the culture of the time. So brutal as it is, they're thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And God had not turned these lions into putty cats. They're still lions. And so these men and their families were killed. So a new decree is issued, verse 25. The Lord is the living God. And what happens to Daniel? End of this section, verse 28. Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus, Cyrus rather, the Persian. I think that's probably right. So the vindicated believer, Daniel is vindicated. Now there's a bit of a tangent, but why, why does the Lord allow Daniel to go through all this? I mean, he shut the mouths of the lions. Why didn't he shut the mouths of the satraps so they didn't come up with this scheme? Why didn't he shut the eyes of, the, of them so they couldn't see that Daniel was praying? Why didn't he shut the tomb so Daniel couldn't go in there? He could have done any of those things, but he allows Daniel to go through all of this. And how stressful. I mean, I, I, this reads, reads fairly simply, doesn't it? But how stressful if you're Daniel praying. Lord, 80 years you've kept me going, but now this, this ridiculous law. You know, an 80-year-old man being dragged through the streets and thrown into a lion's den. You don't bounce if you're 80. It hurts. How stressful, how humiliating. But the Lord lets him go through all of this. Why? Well, we don't know, but it seems to be the same reason as chapter 3. Why Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrown into the furnace but vindicated there. Because often the Lord does not prevent trials coming upon his people. He doesn't save us from trials. He just keeps us despite them. It's often that way, so it seems. But Daniel is wonderfully vindicated. He's the irritating believer, the wise believer. He's the vindicated believer. So last little thing. The model believer, is that what he is? Well, yes and no. Yes, of course, in many ways, he is the model believer. He walks the line between assimilation and staying aloof from his culture. He's a wonderful employee, yet distinctively Christian. No one can make an accusation against him. Brilliant, brilliant. Wonderful to aspire to that. And yes, he is courageous in the face of threat. He is faithful to the Lord, despite the threat to his life. And as he puts it in verse 23, he is vindicated, no wound is found upon him because he trusted in his God. God vindicates those who trust him. And that is true. But then question mark, does it work that way for us? Well, maybe not that way. I mean, a couple of things you've got to ask. The first is this. How many of us are as good as Daniel? Exceptional in our workplaces, promoted to the very top of the firm, and yet utterly godly. No one can make an accusation against us. How many of us are that good? Or literally, as he's described, blameless or without fault. That's uh, verse 4. When he's without corruption... 
it is we can find no fault. Are any of you confident that your colleagues could say, well, there's absolutely no fault with him? No fault. There's no fault at all with Leah. No fault with Dave. Can't find anything wrong. Haven't got a word to say against them, really? Golly, that would be extraordinary. How many of us respond this sort of way with prayer, faith, and trust when stressful scenarios come upon us? Not a hint of panic. Any of us good as Daniel in this chapter? I mean, he's a great model. Not perhaps one we hit or reach. And then there's a second issue, perhaps, with just having him as a model believer, that God doesn't always save his people that way. So if you read chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the sort of heroes of faith, yes, it'll have in there Hebrews 11, verse 32, some by faith saw the mouths of lions shut. Brilliant. Brilliant. He had such great faith that the mouths of the lion were shut. Chapter 11, verse 32 of Hebrews. Verse 35, Others had faith and were tortured and sawn in two and put to death by the sword. Oh. Can I be one of those cuddling up to the lion people rather than being sawn in two people? Uh, they're both described as having magnificent faith. I, I think I like that one more. That's good. Can I be that one, please? We don't get to choose. Who knows? We don't get to choose. In this particular scenario, yes, Daniel had faith in the Lord and he was vindicated at that moment, raised out of the lion's den. Others had faith in the Lord and were killed. And you and I don't get to choose. Trust like Daniel and all will go well with you. Not according to the Bible, it doesn't. Sometimes it does, sometimes not. What's the difference? The Lord knows. So we've got two little problems with him having him just as a model. One, none of us are that good. Two, it doesn't always work that way. Believers die for their faith. So we've got to be realistic. The choice that Daniel faced, would he obey the law of the Medes and the Persians or would he obey the law of the Lord? That becomes a more presenting issue in 21st century London. You don't have to go hard, hard, excuse me, far in the headlines, do you? Just to see Christians, the nurse at work, the school teacher. Do I obey the policy here, or do I obey the law of the Lord? That's becoming a very real issue for some, particularly public sector workers. So please don't say, "Well, I'll just get down on my knees three times a day." Pray towards Jerusalem, I'll get a compass out. Pray towards Jerusalem, and I'll be rescued. You may not. You may lose your job. So what we need is something a bit more than just having Daniel as the model believer. We need to see that Daniel chapter 6, in Daniel chapter 6, we, I mean, you'll have spotted this, we have a preview of the events of Easter. Daniel is fairly clearly, I think, a shadow of Jesus Christ for us. You just think about it. Both arrested in a garden. Excuse me, both arrested while they're praying. Daniel in his bedroom, Jesus in a garden. Both bound by laws. Well, both of them have a king or a ruler who wants to set them free. Darius the Mede, Pontius Pilate. 
both of them have their hands bound, bound by laws. Here, you've got to do what the Medes and the Persians say. You read John 19. You've got to do what the Jewish law says, Pilate. You've got to put this man to death for blasphemy. But I don't want to, but you've got to. Very striking. Both have leaders who seek to save them. Both are innocent, Daniel and Jesus. Both are thrown into a pit or a tomb. Both have a stone rolled over in front of them. On both occasions, there's an angel there in the tomb. It's very striking, the similarities. And yet, of course, there are some differences. Daniel was innocent in this matter. Because Jesus Christ was innocent in every area of life. I'm not told what Daniel's thought life is like. Not perfect, because he's a sinful man. Jesus perfect in every way. Daniel faced the threat of death. Jesus Christ went to death. Daniel was pulled out of a tomb by soldiers. Jesus was pulled out of the tomb by God, the Father, and raised to new life. When Daniel came out, it was just him. When Jesus came out, it was his firstborn of those risen from the dead at the head of a group of countless millions and millions throughout all of history who will also be raised from the dead because of him. Ah, so he's a shadow of Jesus here in Daniel, but not quite that good. What does that mean? It means this as we finish. Look, as far as you can, as far as I can, let's model our lives on Daniel. He's a good bloke impressive, a model believer in many ways. Model your life upon Jesus Christ. But I don't know, nor do you, if the Lord will vindicate you in this life. You can't say that he will. You can't say that all will go well for you. It may not. But you can say this. If you trust in the greater Daniel, if you trust in Jesus Christ, he will vindicate you. Oh, things may go well in this life but he'll vindicate you on the day that matters. When you die and go into your tomb, he'll lift you up and there's vindication then. And if you know that, well then you might just follow the law of the Lord and not the law of the Medes and the Persians or the British government if it comes to that. Because you know vindication will come. Yeah, model yourself on Daniel. Yes, but no one's that good. Vindication comes if you trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know this story well, many of us. And uh, many of us would have learnt it at Sunday school or at a young age. And uh, be told, be like Daniel. He was impressive in his faith. And Father, that's true in many ways. We do want to be as far as is possible like him and honour you, be faithful to you, even though we may find it costs us. Would we be those who engage in this world, faithful to our empires, faithful to the employers, but distinctive for you? But Father, more than having Daniel just as a model, would we recognise in him there's a shadow of the one we need, not just as an example, but the one we need to save us, the one we need to lift us from the grave. Will we trust in Jesus Christ, trust in the vindication that comes from faith in him and live for you? We do ask it in his name. Amen.